Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program. I'm Sarah Del Nido-Budish. I'm Neil McGarrigan, and this is Thanks for Listening, a podcast about bridging the partisan divide in America. At the taping of this episode, it has been nearly two months since police in Minneapolis killed George Floyd, an officer pinning him to the ground with a knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Those two months have seen protests on a huge scale in cities all over the country and, and all over the world, sparked by Mr. Floyd's death and the killings of other black people by the police, and calling attention to and demanding a dismantling of the embedded structural racism within institutions like the police and society more broadly. A Pew Research study found in June that two-thirds of Americans support the Black Lives Matter movement, and yet the nation was also drawn into the familiar groove of partisanship and division. Choose a side, cast your lot. Are you for Black Lives Matter or are you for law and order? Are you a racist or a lawless thug? If you're not with us, you're against us. To many people, of course, the protests have been an outlet to express years of built-up anger, pain, anguish, indignity. And the time for dialogue feels long past. Now is the time, instead, for decisive action and meaningful change. And even to people who are urgently calling for action and feeling fed up with talk, this feels like a critically important moment for real learning and reflection about what it means to be white in America, or to be black, or a person of color, about what it means to live in a fundamentally racist society, or to acknowledge structural racism, let alone to dismantle it. This episode explores what it could look like to try and bridge divides around racial justice. To do that, we engage some fundamental questions about the nature of dialogue. If there is a place for dialogue, what exactly is the dialogue that needs to be had? In what ways do these conversations need to look and feel different than they have in the past? Who are these conversations for? How have some approaches to dialogue, in fact, asked very different things of the white people and the people of color at the table? Where are we tripping up in our dialogues about racism, even with good intentions and a desire for change? Liz Joyner, a co-founder of the Tallahassee, Florida-based organization, The Village Square, has been tackling these and other questions in the current climate and for 15 years, as The Village Square has pursued its mission to promote real democracy by bringing people face-to-face to discuss difficult issues. Not to agree, as they quickly point out, but to disagree, to keep talking anyway. On today's episode, we talk with Liz about her organization's experience helping people build connections and relationships across vastly different political views. And she shares with us her experience grappling with significant barriers to having those conversations, and even so, why we need to keep having them. Neil and I are super excited for this conversation. So Liz, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. So to kick off, I kind of want to situate us in this moment in time, which is a unique moment, of course. So um, when we think about the village square as a concept, I, I feel like that concept has gone undergone a lot of evolution, even in the past few months, right? So for one thing, we're in the middle of a pandemic um, that has forced us out of the village squares, dispersed the village square, um, and we're sort of all in the midst of trying to recreate that virtually. And then on top of that, in the past month or so, there's been this huge crescendo in public protest around racial justice, and, and people have physically, literally come back to the village square to come together. And so I'm curious to hear first just what have what has the past couple of months been like for you? What has it been like for the Village Square? Can you give us a sense of what things have have looked like and felt like for you and for your the, the folks that you connect with? I would characterize it as both a time of incredible upheaval and opportunity. In in terms of the upheaval, obviously the um, you know the work that we do, we feel very 
deeply about the importance of people gathering in person, that we believe that actually really changes everything and that a lot of the problems that we're having now are that we are relating more and more digitally uh, rather than face-to-face with people who are... um, who you know who are partners in in governing and an American democracy and who might disagree with us or have different life experiences. Uh, so it's quite the thing to be in the midst of um, so much change and challenge uh, at a time when we can't gather personally. So I mean, for that, for for me, that's very personally hard. Um, and so you know, we've worked really hard to yeah, kind of stay with stay with the moment as best we can. Um, and having conversations that, that are that are continuing conversations that are kind of long occurring, but also starting new ones. So we're adapting like everybody else is um, to what the the village square and the public square is today. And you know, the, the I guess the other thing I wanted to say about about thinking about the public square and the town square and the village square, that basic concept, it's such a fundamental concept in our democracy. And I I think maybe we don't, um, we don't put ourselves there enough, you know, in the hometowns we share with the citizens that we share the hometowns with. Um, And so in a lot of ways, it, it can be a really healthy thing that we're returning back to it. Well, super, super healthy to be turning back to it, but but also I I think it's fair to say super um, challenging in some ways too. And I'm curious to hear your perspective on and, and I guess your experience with what it's like to actually get people into the public square. I think it would be really helpful and, and interesting to hear about what the challenges are in in making that happen. It's interesting that one would think at a time when we disagree so thoroughly and completely on so many things, it would seem that the point of disagreements are are kind of the rub and the hardest part. Uh, but our experience has really been that the hardest part is getting people uh, into the conversation, getting the diverse voices into the conversation, um, you know, whether that's in person or or digitally, as we have to do right now, uh, that there that we've you know experienced an extraordinary sort of um, siloing of of the different parts of our uh, civic lifeblood, um, where where it's gotten a lot easier to get. Uh, groupish digitally, and um, and I mean just a punch of the button, and you're right there with the folks who have the same life experience that you do, and agree with you. And uh, the problem is that you also have to have a space where you have a, a healthy place that you disagree, and that that is um, foundationally part of what we ought to be doing as well. So it really is the the biggest challenge now. Um, to to us and really to to my mind to you know achieving um, solutions to the problems that face us are being willing to put ourselves in a, in an ongoing um, you know somewhat uncomfortable relationship with people we disagree with so so that really you know to us is the by far the biggest challenge right now and of course as the temperature rises on, uh, you know, our public conversations, that actually becomes more difficult. But uh, so maybe that, I mean, I guess a logical next question is, so how how have you actually gone about doing it? And, and, and you do have this long experience, 15 years, that maybe feels a little bit different to be in the moment we're in now, but I imagine also is informed a lot by what your experience has been over the years. So what is the, I don't know, the key that you all have found or some of the keys that you have found to actually getting people to come to the table? 
Well, for for us, foundationally, and th- and this really is sort of the, our part of our origin story, is that you have to either start with or create relationships that really are across divisions. So, so it doesn't work very well if you have a very well-meaning group of people who have the same life experience and the same ideologies who are trying to reach out and create this conversation, that there, there really has to be significant diversity in sort of the core uh, central group of people who are trying to drive something forward. And, you know, there, there are a million different reasons for that. One is that you kind of have to check each other's biases and uh, they're called blind spots for a reason, right? And, and if you, um, if you, I mean, there have been a number of times over the years that someone who has a different ideology or viewpoint than I have will say, whoa, wait a minute, are you sure that's, you're seeing that the right way? And so that kind of um, push and pull needs to exist at a very intimate level. Um, to be able to move out into um, a public square that's very divided. Uh, so we, um, maybe one day I'll think of a better name for this, but but for right now we're calling that a core catalyst model. So, um, and if you think about it almost as, as the rings of a tree, um, if you, if you cut a tree, you know, across and you see the years of growth. So if you look, if you start in the very center and you're wanting to build out this big, strong, powerful, metaphorical tree, um, then, then you start with the kind of relationships that you want to grow out and then you grow from there. And so it's part of our origin story because we, we kind of accidentally stumbled into the, um, this concept, uh, by virtue of the fact that, that, you know, when we started the village square, it was because I was inspired by a group of, um, local leaders who disagreed very strongly on a real controversial local issue. And they were able to still have the wonderful conversations that, uh, that, that I think were enlightening that helped us see the whole problem as it was by virtue of the fact that they had really solid relationships. So a solid core of relationships is absolutely critical. And, and then you grow from there. Um, you know, another basic idea I, I would say that is really important is that, you know, in the moment we're in, obviously, there are a lot of people who are going to want to start a lot of things, but it is really important to consider uh, what you're doing, something that has to be, you know, fed and maintained. Um, it, ha- it has to, you, I describe it as a civic muscle. Um, so, so that you want to, um, you want to be regularly practicing that and probably in no other space, uh, more so than conversations on race. That's really critical because, you know, if you're, if, if you're having difficult conversations regularly around, uh, topics that are hard to discuss, then, um, then, you know, you can, you can do it when, when it gets more emotional. So, so, you know, think of it as something that it has to be an ongoing thing. It's not like you can sit down at a table one time and all of a sudden, boom, 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 you've got this list of um, policy agreements. The relationships have to exist at a foundational level for the other things to be able to, to be, be brought in on top of them. You can um, just kind of make make this concrete for us. So you have you, you've managed to um, get a mix of people in the room. What do um, Village Square events look like and feel like? How do you go about um, having these conversations? Well, we 
one of the things that's somewhat distinctive about what we do, and it, it does feel like it's important and powerful and maybe just slightly different than, than what is often done, is that our, our events feel very much like a like a, a, a social gathering, a, a almost kind of a civic club, and and I use that word um, probably asking forgiveness for it because I don't mean it's exclusive. I just mean it has that sort of feel of hey, we're doing this thing together, we're enjoying each other's company, um, and and the and the each other in the room is it is a very you know diverse, varied group of people from the community. Um, so we, the other thing that we started immediately and, and actually going back to that point too, even if what you're doing is you're having a policy discussion, you're having a work group, you're trying to make, make, um, your way to the other side of an issue. One of the most um, critical things we've learned about human nature is that, um, we're, we make decisions intuitively rather than rationally. And so you want to set up um, an environment where people will be wanting, wanting to lean towards each other. So, how, you know, how can you create an environment in that group where, um, where, where you're sort of sowing the seeds of people wanting to kind of lean towards each other, even where they disagree from the very beginning for us, that has also include, um, uh, always having food uh, that it's an incredible way to humanize people um, without a lot of difficulty. So um, like our first, uh, our first program that we had all those years ago was, um, was on America's energy future. And it was a, a we call it dinner at the square. And, and it's a series, uh, you know, where we eat dinner first, we socialize first. Um, and then we have the conversation and that really is incredibly intentional. And so our events tend to um, kind of, we, we work to have kind of a thread of, um, of it being a little bit irreverent, a little bit different, something that, uh, that you want to be there on this evening to have this conversation. And so, so I think that, you know, to, to give people sort of a sense of th- this is a cool place to be, this is where I want to be, and to make it just a little bit different, to, to laugh when it's possible, you know, to think about things that maybe sometimes you don't normally think about it, sort of the standard uh, civic event. And, and our experience has been that that, that really does work. You, you need to till the soil. You know, if you want to plant plant the grass seeds, you got to have tilled soil. And and one of the biggest problems we have right now um, in our society is that we've stopped doing that. We've sort of we've stopped tending to that foundation. So we need to think about things in terms of relationships and and ones that will last, and the ones that will will outlast. You know, this disagreement or that. Actually, one of the um, one of the concepts that we talk about in terms of relationships that you're wanting to build in this kind of endeavor is referred to as cross-cutting relationships. So you might um, disagree vehemently on politics, but your kids are on the same softball team. And those enduring relationships that can withstand difference uh, have, to, have to be rebuilt again. Um, for us to, you know, sort of save the the public square, and frankly, I'd argue the project of democracy. Well, and I mean, if if I and just to sort of think through that, if you and I are are you know come face to face, and I know nothing about you, and I hear something that I disagree with deeply, 
Um, that's one thing. But if you and I know each other well and I hear something I disagree with, I might be more inclined to say, well, look, I know Liz and Liz isn't crazy. So maybe that idea is not as crazy as I, as I once thought it was. I can actually get behind it because I know something about you as a person and I can empathize, I guess, with what you're saying because I know you a little bit better and maybe respect where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. And that's how we humans uh, roll. Um, so, you know, if we if we don't know you, it becomes so easy to distill you to um, something two dimensional and something two dimensional that maybe is misrepresentative of really who you are. Um, this, you know, uh, I, I, I believe that in the whole um, decade and a half I've been doing this work, there hasn't been a single person who I've come to know more intimately who didn't make some level of sense. Um, based on what they what they knew, what their life experiences were, and what they didn't know, frankly, right? Because right. I mean, we, we're living in an environment where you can now um, make your decision and then pick your facts. Um, and in fact, that's how that's how our public square is working now, unfortunately, because it's just so easy to do. And sometimes we don't even really know that that's what's happening when we Google search something, and and it gives us it pulls up the results of the things that that, uh, you know, we click on more often that we're more likely to agree on. Um, so, so yes, that's exactly right. And, 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 and the relationships really have to exist at the foundation of efforts like this. And actually that sort of leads to another sort of broad, um, learning that we've, we've, um, had over the years that I think isn't really intuitive necessarily, um, for folks is, and that that is that the, the public square for, conservatives has, it's become harder for them to participate in ways that, that I, I think are making us less healthy and that, um, that, you know, we've learned over the years to, to be really thoughtful about um, making our events hospitable for conservatives to join in the conversation too, because if they're not, um, then that means we're, you know, we're not, we're not there being impacted and influenced by each other. And we're not seeing into each other's blind spots in a way that can craft better ideas and solutions. And frankly, it also if, uh, makes it easier for us to dislike each other. So let's bring some of these learnings and the, some of these sort of foundational um, kind of concepts to the initiative that you mentioned is just about to kick off in a few days um, around equality. Um, tell us about that, sort of how it originated, particularly in light of these ideas about what's important in terms of convening and the group that convenes these conversations. What was that like? How did this get kicked off? And what are your um, hopes for this initiative? Um, well, it's interesting. I'm actually going to answer by combining um, some learnings on a couple of initiatives, because in some ways, what we're doing, uh, the series we're doing, um, a series of Zoom town halls by um, on equality in the community uh, is kind of the fruit of, of what we've planted all these years and in, another, in, in other projects. Um, you know, I mentioned, um, I mentioned long, The Longest Table. We also have a program we do with Leon County Government called uh, Created Equal, and it's on near the anniversary of um, the MLK holiday. And, um, and we, uh, then we also have a pro project that we st started that's more intimate called Local Color. And we started that um, after the Trayvon Martin tragedy. We started talking about how can we possibly make 
make it so that in the midst of a race-related crisis, the community can really gather around um, in, in uh, you know diversity, around race and, and opinion, that, that we really can gather the community. And our observation was, even though that we were we were really used to having pretty major community events, depending on where you hosted the event and what the topic was, um, it would it would either be you know a very heavily white audience or a very heavily black audience. And while we had relationships with both, you know, our goal was we really wanted to be able to build a diverse audience. Um, and so, so those projects that I mentioned were sort of all came out of that. And local color was the most intimate. And the idea was we wanted to create this space where um, really, really focusing on uh, younger citizens, um, uh, millennials and below, uh, that we really wanted to create this really vibrant place where we were really having conversations uh, on, on on race, being re- very unvarnished about th- them, and again, sort of going after that civic muscle. So what we needed to do is we needed to keep talking about race, but we needed to, to keep that hard to engage conservative audience because, again, um, you know, that it, it it's 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 harder to step into the public square for some reasons we can either go into or not. So we wanted to keep that going, and then we wanted we wanted to you know ha- have all of the different forums we have come together and make it highly racially diverse. And so in in doing that, we have um, we've built these relationships that almost you know that that then form the foundation for for things like um, what we're trying uh, to accomplish in the Zoom series um, beginning uh, next week. So um, so we're able to create a space where where people feel like you know they trust that the conversation is going to be fair and honest and um, and and that we're will you know that we keep faith with all the relationships we have. So, you know, we're able, we're, we're bringing in a, uh, a pastor from a very important church in town. Um, actually, it will also include um, the attorney for the family of George Floyd, who um, attorney Ben Crump, he is local. Um, so, so we know him historically. It will in- include the U.S. attorney, um, s- the state attorney, someone from the FBI, our sheriff, our police chief, our uh, Tallahassee NAACP president, and then um, the president and founder of the Neighborhood Association on the south side of town. And so you've got, that's just an example of how you can, if you stay in there with the relationships, if you work on them, if you, if you hear people, if you see people, then you can gather that kind of um, group of people together to have, you know, what will be a challenging conversation, but the relationships exist that it will be that, that, you know, we believe it'll be a good one and constructive one. I, I want to maybe push you a little bit uh, to say more about what makes it so important to hold space for different views now, because there are a lot of, I think, calls for, uh, for, for taking sides, for taking a stand. Um, and I think, you know, even on this call, of course, our perspective is, is limited. Our, we have some variation with our perspectives, I'm sure, I'm sure, but I think we would all characterize ourselves as well-meaning um, and liberal, I think, um, and also uh, white, or at least benefiting from white privilege. So that's a lot of thoughts, but I guess I, I'm, th- this is a really complex problem, I think, I think, for 
dialogue right now. And so help me understand, help us all understand a little bit more about um, kind of how you see the importance of getting that diverse group right now, including conservatives, and sort of where we trip up on that. Um, so, so, so yes to everything you said. And um, the, you know, it's it, uh, one of the things that after the Charlottesville uh, tragedy we, we did is we, we started working on a project inside Charlottesville about the idea of, of building uh, conversations across divisions. And um, we did some real deep diving with some wonderful academics and thought leaders in the black community and, and talking about, um, you know, how you, how you do this. And um, there is no question that the sentiment was expressed very deeply uh, that you just shared, which is, wait a minute, it's now, n- now is not the time now, now, you know, the, the, um, now is not the time to, uh, harbor, you know, to, to listen to diverse perspectives. And, um, now is the time for us to move. And, you know, I, I'm not as someone as not a person of color. I am, uh, I don't think it's fair for me to sort of reflect on that because I think that there is, um, I think that there there's a part of that that's just legitimate and true, right? Um, and 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 at a time like this, we all I think have to find the place that speaks to our heart, um, and 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 that makes sense to us. I I think that the the argument I would make, and and one of the things that we did as a part of the um, Charlottesville conversation is I, I was asked to reread um, uh, Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham Jail. And, um, and we, and we talked about that. And, and I think that the point that the person who asked me to read it was making, um, was, uh, was what King does reflect all the way through. Um, and that is, you know, we, we have, um, we have had enough and we are, uh, we are losing patience and the fierce urgency of now. And, and actually, I, I actually think one of the things that, that I've learned is that, Right now, we just we have to be good listeners, and we have to be okay with the fact that we're in a, in different places. Right. One of the things that we've found in our in our work again, I I am liberal, have been liberal my, during my life, but I've spent fifteen years stretching. Is we find um, people of incredible goodwill on the right side of the aisle, uh, many of whom are very concerned about advancing racial justice. And so, you know, sometimes I think that when you stand, when you stand on the other side and say, that's it, if you, if you're not with me on this part, we're, we're, we're done for, um, then, then I think you miss a lot of the people that you would gather into your righteous cause if you didn't do that. Um, and uh, this is this is a don't try this um, at home thing uh, because because it, it it's an extreme example um, of the contact hypothesis principle, but but I think it demonstrates how important it is to at least leave that space open. You know, maybe it's not um, maybe that's not all of what you do um, for sure, and and. Uh, but maybe it's some of what you do. Uh, there is a you know, inspiring story of Daryl Davis, a black musician, who set out years ago to bring people out of the Klan, and he did that by engaging them personally. Again, 
don't do this. <laughs> don't I mean, you know, don't go, don't, don't uh, expose yourself to risk and danger, but what, what a brave man. And he, and you know, when you read accounts of what he did, you think, how can a human being have ever been willing to just sit there in a relationship where people said some of the things they said? Um, but he um, he has uh, brought two, over 200 Klansmen out of the Klan in his life, and he asked them to give them his robe when they leave. Um, so, so and, and it, it is, I think we underestimate the transformational power of just getting to know people and and as you get to know people hearts move and that's very powerful and it, it's got to be a you know we think it's a part of what has to happen right now and i guess it's the part that we're we're tending to so uh, so as you look to you know kick off the event next week um what, what, which which aspect of that process or aspects do you expect you'll um, be asking people to, to be paying attention to? Is is this this seems like a very difficult time to be figuring out when is it time to listen and and can you actually afford to be solely in a listening position or or do you need to be exchanging some kind of views once you have articulated that common purpose? When do you get to the underlying? Um, I don't know how the how, how you get there. The, the discussion about how to get to that common purpose. So I'm going to answer your question sort of in in a couple of different ways. One one is that so digitally on Tuesday night, the the thing that we work on doing uh, is is sort of creating that kind of uh, spirit between the people on the panel. So we've gathered a very um, uh, we're, we've very, gathered a very diverse group of people, um, and then we've we've begun our conversations with them about what it is we're going for, what kind of relationships and conversations we'd like to have. And um, one of the things uh, that we did is we shared with them um, that that the um, that the goal is not necessarily to you know in an hour and a half we're not going to be able to address uh, problems of equality, even if it is over three nights, um, directly. But the thing that we can do and and the thing that we stress is that our work product is empathy. So um, I think that that can sound a little bit um, squishy and uh, light, light to um, some folks, but the truth is that that is what is so desperately and um, and really in a dire way missing in our public square. And so, so to us, if, you know, again, going with that kind of core catalyst idea, um, we have this group of, of ten, nine people having this conversation and we have created empathy between them. We, we actually encourage them to reach out to each other and, uh, and, and in our local color programs, we uh, start out with the, um, well, let me actually read a couple of, um, of things off of, of what we start out with, with local color. We tease about how we say so much at the beginning that, um, that, that we hope that there's time when it's all over. But we define it as local color as a network of people from all viewpoints and walks of life who stay connected despite and because of our differences with a goal of building a Tallahassee that can transcend and transform racial division. We are devoted to frank discussion about race, politics, and life in America and having fun while we do it. 
Um, and so, uh, so again, it's focused on our goal is that we're going to stay connected. It, it isn't to agree. And then when we start out, we, um, we start with, uh, with guiding wisdom for our conversation, um, starting with our goal isn't to agree, it's to disagree and to keep talking. Uh, assume good intentions by others. Use of the wrong words is allowed. Um, and in parentheses, imp- imperfect word choice doesn't make you a racist. Uh, the next is don't come to offend. Temporarily overlook offense. Disagreement and hate are not the same thing. Practice humility. No matter how wrong someone is and how right you are, there's still something you can learn. Extend undeserved favor to each other, uh, which is maybe the opposite of the way that it feels like the public square is these days. Right, right. Um, Listen to understand. And a point of advice, insulting those you disagree with isn't persuasive. And then we also have our, our final thing, and actually this is really true, um, is and what happens at local color stays at local color. And that our intention with that particular program is, you know, we don't tape it, we don't broadcast it. Um, we want people to feel just really comfortable being where they are and saying what they need to say. So I, I wish I could um, say to you that we were going to have 200 people in, in a room um, uh, uh, next week, but you know we're we're navigating the the challenges of the pandemic as best we can. So, but but once we're back at it, that's what it will look like. Um, I, so, if I, I will um, really eagerly follow up on a couple of things you said, um, Liz, and there's a lot in there um, that I um, want to ask you about. Um, first, you know, you mentioned that you consider empathy to be your work product and that can sound a little bit squishy to some people. Um, and, and, and maybe so, although I, I also think that when you, when you do actually achieve that work product, when you have created empathy among people, I mean, that leads to real action and, and, and real doing for somebody else. I mean, if you have empathy for somebody, you can actually come to their, um, I don't know, to their aid or, 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 um, reach yourself out to them in ways that are really meaningful. And so maybe it, em- empathy is the, the work product, but it's an interim work product that actually creates action. Are you, absolutely. And in an environment, in the environment that we're in, when we haven't tended to that human to human relationship component of our public space, it has to happen before the, the rest happens, right? Um, or at least simultaneously. So it's, it's just an intrinsic part. One of the things that we've um, observed in human beings that it just is remarkable is we, you know, so we're groupish and we, we tend to sort of group up and that that's okay, but that that's a tendency that, you know, is creating an us versus them right now. But then also human beings are incredibly reciprocal to each other. And so, you know, somebody does a, a small kindness to you. Um, we work really hard to do it back again. And so what you can create in, in, an, in an environment where there's empathy and reciprocity is you can move what has, I think, become for a, a number of reasons, a, a vicious cycle in the public square to a virtuous cycle in the public square. In some ways, I think some of the frustration that we feel that here we are in 2020 um, this should not be that, you, know, w- w- you know, where we having s- such a large percentage of our population um, feel so discriminated against and, and treated so differently. It's, that is, it, 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 it shouldn't be right for any of us. But the problem is that if we, 
if sort of if 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 we have the can if the cancel culture is operating and it's just like no you're gone and know what you said in that way um, didn't work. I, I've seen it change hearts in the opposite direction, right? That people that people move away from um, the cause, the righteous cause, rather than towards it. Um, so, so I think it's important to you know there, there there's a difference between you know how strongly you feel you are right and and how effective you're being in progressing towards your ultimate goals, and they they kind of have to be you know balance a little bit. We, I mean, we've just really learned a lot about persuasion over our 15 years of gathering people in. And we always, we try to put people in conversation who can be persuasive to the other side, um, because that's where we feel like you really start, you really start moving and, and, and things start building. And actually, you know, one other thought I had is I, I was um, chatting with my board chair the other day, who we, we were talking about just the, the, you know, extraordinary moment uh, um, with NASCAR, uh, when, um, not only when they change their policy and obviously this is, you know, this is a momentous time. Things are happening. People are hearing, uh, things that they have not heard before. Um, and, and, um, they, um, you know, after that, there was a horrible, um, incident where somebody, uh, flew a plane with a Confederate flag over, overhead. Is that, is that exactly what happened? I didn't, um, I wasn't following it carefully, but, um, and then there was some question about whether they went back and forth, but there was some question whether, but there was a, a, a noose in the, um, stall of the only black NASCAR driver. And then there was that extraordinary moment where all the other NASCAR drivers uh, walked his, pushed his car into the race. I mean, what an amazing moment. And, and, and here we have a few just heinous, horrible actions um, and then some incredible actions taken. And probably the vast majority of people who were marching um, with with the driver were um, were conservative politically, right? Uh, and they were doing the right things. And so sort of at a metaphoric level, you'd hate to you'd hate to make it impossible for those people, joining and walking with him to join the cause by virtue of having a purity test for you have to be all the way or else you're not with us at all. You're either with us or against us. And and to me, that was a real transcendent moment really for our society. And I think there are a lot of people of goodwill who who are interested in being transcendent in that way. I, I think the, the norms that you mentioned, Liz, um, a few minutes ago are, are so Striking to me, um, both because I think, you know, we've, we've um, talked to a number of organizations on this podcast that have had their own norms, which in a lot of ways are quite um, resonant with what, with what your norms are. So in terms of curiosity and kind of giving the benefit of a doubt, um, an attitude of forgiveness. And I think there's a way in which there's something a little bit more pointed. I'm not sure if that's right to characterize it, but more pointed in, in the norms that you articulated um, around where things can go off the rails a bit, right? So word choice, you know, feeling like maybe the favor that I extend to someone is is not deserved or, or that sort of thing. Could you say a little bit about why you, uh, you know, you chose to phrase the norms that way and, and any reactions that you've gotten to those norms in the conversations that you've held? 
interestingly enough, the main reaction we get is that people contact us and ask us for that list. Um, I've had people, I had somebody just a couple weeks ago who moved out of state and said that she was doing some work and wanted our local color rules list. And so we really haven't had a whole lot of pushback. I do think that one of the experiences that we've had um, with with local color that's that's um, kind of interesting and may be helpful as as in particular white liberals who are concerned about taking advantage of this moment um, in in history um, can maybe learn something from and and that is that. Um, the you know so i've i've been i've now been in hundreds of rooms uh of big rooms full of people working on ha- having conversations around race and inevitably um the the thing that very often happens is that um fellow liberals of goodwill um uh stand up and 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 say something that is i i do think in, it, it meant in t- incredibly well um, and it's like, you know, I am on your side. I, I, I want to be helpful. Tell us what to do. Um, tell us how to be a good ally. We want to fight this, um, this racism that is sort of by implication out there that I'm not part of it. Right. That, um, and, um, and, and it tends to, I've, I've sort of, um, come to believe that, by doing that, what it, it does is it sort of pulls the whole conversation about race into the same sort of, um, I don't know, uh, wood chipper <laughs> that it feels like almost every conversation goes into now of partisanship. And it uh, it makes this assumption that, you know, I, I, I have these liberal values and I am um, and I am he, I I'm assuming that that my liberal values are all the ways that we're going to get there on race, and I'm in, I'm assuming that I'm assuming that people out there are the ones who have these these biased ideas. But I think what happens in when statements like that are made is that conservatives in the room assume that the way that the conversation is going to go is going to make it impossible for them to say things they really want to say because we've sort of adopted kind of the, the, the world frame of liberalism on, on the issue of race. Um, and, uh, and so they kind of go, okay, well, I think I, you know, I, I think I can't, I can't say something. Um, because, um, because we sort of defined it as the us versus them a little bit. Uh, and then I think that people of color in the room kind of feel like, whoa, you know, we're now, now we're, it doesn't feel like we're getting to new territory. It doesn't feel like we're having a deep conversation. It feels like we're having the same old, same old conversation. And so, so in a way we just have, you know, decades of, of this conversation being very set in stone as it occurs. And, and I have to tell you, I have this, this walk that I've walked um, through these conversations. I've met all sorts of people who lean conservative, who have so much um, to share and to add to conversations on race. And um, by not uh, making the space feel like something they can walk into. I think that we're, we're actually unintentionally not getting where we need to go. 
Um, and actually, funny story, we we meet, uh, you know, at the beginning of each season and talk about the issues that we're going to talk about. And I had been sort of mulling this whole thing over in my mind about, huh, you know, maybe maybe we should talk about this as a topic. Are white liberals unintentionally slowing racial progress? And I want you all to know that uh, that that we got more pushback from that from white liberals than we ever get from topics that we go into and we dive into law. I mean, we've talked about all the controversial topics right in the middle of the controversy. And that is when we get significant blowback. Um, and so you, so to me, it's, 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 I don't know. It, it feels like there are things that we can do that will advance the conversation that involve, you know, listening more, making make it maybe a little bit less about ourselves and about our our ideology and our views. Um, and and I do think that, you know, I think there are there are a lot of liberals who feel this so deeply and are really looking for the right thing to do. So so that would be maybe my little piece of advice from our experience. Well, and, and and I don't know. Like maybe we it, you combine that. I think I hear you saying with um, actually the, in the moment using a set of norms that um, encourage a different kind of conversation that is not so focused on um, being precise and being um, saying the right thing all the time. And um, those some of those um, you know features of I guess the sort of the white liberal um, approach that maybe exclude conservative voices. Or make make conservative leaning folks feel like that they can't be part of the conversation. You combine it with those norms, and and, and I one thing I'm really curious about is as a practical matter, and, and when you're sitting in a room, um, how you have found those norms to actually be, um, I don't know, not just how they work, but um, how do you get people to be comfortable that they are going to be respected, and then how do you actually f- ask people to observe them, and what are some examples of even at a high level, those norms being put into practice and actually helping a conversation where, um, you know, people are feeling more free to say the things that they might otherwise feel is going to get them a lot of um, criticism or heat or have them labeled a certain way. What's the experience in the room with actually using those norms? Um, So here's an example, like, gosh, I wish I remember the topic that we were talking about that evening. Um, But we, um, there was a, a m- m- kind of middle ageish white uh, a white conservative woman in the audience, and she felt comfortable enough to say, "You know, I I really don't get this. From my perspective, this is what I see. You know, this and this and this. And so I, I'm really asking, what what am I missing? What am I?" Um, you know, what am I not seeing? And I mean, think about, you know, how many conversations have you been involved in that, that involve race that include that, I mean, that, that willingness to, to say, I don't, I don't think I agree. I don't think I see what you see, but what am I missing? And she said it was such, um, you know, because, because I like to think that we made it safe for her to say that and that we weren't going to judge her. She said it was such, um, earnest, uh, kind of openness and, um, and a, a black woman in the audience who we hadn't met before, um, uh, asked for the microphone and she answered her question and she answered it in the most beautiful, 
human way. And she talked about how she, and she was an older woman and she um, talked about how, you know, she wasn't able to go to the library, to go into the library and to get books. And she explained what that felt like. And she explained what it felt like now to go to the library. And, and the, and the woman who originally posed the question was able to come back and say, I, I would have never thought of that. I didn't, I did, I could, couldn't imagine having that experience. And that's, you know, in, when we're with each other, with our hearts really open is when things really move. That's interesting. You know, that reminds me a little of, uh, Liz is, is the story that a number of our listeners and may have seen from a number for a few years ago with Heather McGee, the leader of Demos um, on C-SPAN, who had, you know, she was on a sort of talk show and, and um, someone called in who, who I, I guess it sort of posed a question that was similar It's saying, you know, I, I am prejudiced. I do have prejudice. How do I, I want to change and I don't know how. Um, and I think it's, that's, that's the kind of question that we all love, right? It's coming from a genuine place and it's, it's curious and it's, it's well, it is well-intentioned. Um, and, and I think, you know, there are ways in which we, we do turn to, um, people can turn to people of color to answer those questions for them, um, in, in all the, for all the right reasons, right. For all the, the well-meaning reasons. Um, and then the other thing that I hear you saying though, that's the other piece of the work is, is just this internal work, um, that each of us has, you know, each, every person to sort of pose these kinds of questions to ourselves and, understand the ways in which in the context of talking about race or racial justice, there's a piece that involves connection with one another. And then there's a piece that involves this really sort of equally hard internal work. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's a level of humility that requires someone to say, I don't uh-huh. get it. I, I, I want to understand that I don't get it. And you hear so frequently, Oh, I get it all already. Right. Um, but the humility piece is incredible. And in those questions both were examples you both shared. And yeah, and I, I mean, I think I love that word humility. And by the way, I love the um, the the story about the C-SPAN call. We actually have it up on our website as one of the inspiring stories of of um, stretching across differences. And and humility really matters. So if you know, one of the things that um, that actually it was you know uh, maybe it was really only a few days after um, things had really accelerated after the George Floyd killing that we gathered uh, this group of people together and we were talking about, you know, kind of having our conversations be a podcast. And um, the people of color on the call who, honestly, we've been doing this for such a long time, I just sort of expected that we'd all kind of be in the same place. Um, and okay, now what, you know, wh- where are we going to go with this conversation now? And that, that is one of my learnings, frankly, that I was wrong about that. And, and I needed to check that. And, and one of the things that we also heard from our, from these dear and close relationships across color is it might be time for white folks to be having some conversations about this. And we need to turn to people who, who maybe even people who share our opinions and maybe white liberals need to have more conversations about how can we be really effective here? What, what, what can we do? What are we, what are we missing? What are, what are blind spots that we have? What if there are some ideas that are more in the conservative wheelhouse of ideas that actually would, um, 
would support making racial progress and, and have that moment of, of you know, self-reflection rather than the, uh, the sort of the, the hair trigger um, blaming that we tend to do of the other groups. That, you know, that tactic t- and that, that result tends to be more about feeling close to the people that we're with or us than it is to actually sort of winning the argument. I mean, and you can be, you can be as, as deeply devoted and as clear as you ever were of the urgency and, and, and the fact that this is something that has to happen and still be self-reflective about the, the strategies you're using to get there. I think it's really important what you just said, because I, I, I wonder sometimes if um, this invitation to engage with people who disagree with us um, you know, the, the word or one worry is that it indicates potentially a compromise of what we believe and that it, mm-hmm. it indicates that we actually don't feel as we're not sure. Right. Yeah. And, and there's, I guess the kernel of truth there is that there is a place for letting go of some certainty in order to really listen well. Right. Um, but what I hear you saying is that actually there doesn't need to be that trade-off. Um, there doesn't need to be sort of a, a you know, yeah, there doesn't need to be sort of an inverse relationship between. A- absolutely not. They really are actually different things. And in some ways, you could even argue that if that, you know, the stronger you feel that, that the urgency uh, of now, um, the more you want to succeed in, in how you do it, and the more you want to move from, you know, having 100 people who believe what you believe to 110 to 200 to 300. <laughs> and, and that's how you do it. So by definition, you have to engage with people who don't agree with you yet. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, um, you know, that, that's just an important part of it. Actually, my, um, one of the people who's been involved in the village square for a very long time, uh, c- kind of makes that point in another way repeatedly when he talks about how, um, we, it, it isn't, you know, the, the health of the village square isn't about metaphorically I'm speaking now. Um, but, um, isn't about having um, a mealy middle. Um, it's about engaging in the dynamic conversation between um, between between very strong and opinions um, and having them be a part of it, but doing so in a way that we can see common humanity and that and that we re- that we're reaching for it. Um, where we where we can, and so um, he uh, he talks about how um, the the village square is actually friendly um, to uh, to opinions that are that are outside of you know kind of the the middle ish area, and and in fact he uses Dr. King as an example that at the time that. Um, that he was considered, you know, um, very far afield from that kind of middle compromisey place, and and that you know, incredible things come um, from from people who strongly, deeply believe and and in something that has to change. Liz, it's been so valuable to hear your perspective and have you share the work that you've been doing and what you've got planned and your insight about what it means to have you know, really, truly difficult conversations, but to have them um, in a meaningful way and, and to address the things in the public square that, like you have said, you know, involve a lot of trying to understand common purpose, but then creating the space to be able to disagree about the way to get there and work together on figuring that out. 
And then, of course, the special challenges and the, and the differences that it might sort of apply to people trying to have conversations today about race. And then, of course, some of the parallels that these are these are really challenging conversations to have. But um, one of the things you also said that I really appreciate is that people have to come to these conversations and they have to do their best and they have to try. And we all have an obligation to, to be doing that. So I appreciate that you were able to um, and agreed to come and, and help us do that. It, it was really a pleasure. And I think that, you know, in some ways having the conversation without without the diversity is just by definition, you know, we, we humans are part blind, we can only see what we can see. And I guess maybe one of my closing thoughts would be that, yeah, I think now's a time when the, the world can, you know, a lot of what's wrong is very right there in front of us. It's now, it's not covert. It's, it's over. We're talking about it. And I think now is the time to, to pull out our, our best ability to empathize with people uh, who are different than we are, um, whether, whether they're on our side politically or not on our side politically, that now is the time to um, do, you know, to walk in other people's shoes. And, and I think that the result, if we can do that, um, if we can see as much humanity in in other humans, I think that we'll look back on this time as being transformative. And and I do I do think that that uh, that empathy and that you know really working to understand, really listening is going to be the difference the difference in in what what this history becomes. I mean, right? We can feel we're living history right now. And I think if it for, to get it to be where I think the vast majority of Americans want it to be, we need to see each other and our humanity. Well, that's a wonderful invitation, kind of kind of an electric invitation, and I love it. And and thank you, Liz, for that, and and thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Liz's message and the work of the Village Square is to bring people together to engage difficult issues, not to agree, but to disagree, and to keep talking anyway. It is hard work getting well-meaning people of goodwill who happen to disagree to engage with each other in the public square. And it's vital work. Not exactly by design, but maybe a little bit. Our past few episodes have focused on some of the biggest challenges to our democracy today social media and the problem of siloization and echo chambers, uh, and of course the COVID-related precautions that are re relegating people to, to online engagement. And the Village Square is diving into all of it. If you want to learn more about Village Square programs you might be able to join or replicate in your own community, visit them at tlh.villagesquare.us. Get inspired by their story and their history. Get inspired to revitalize the Village Square in your home community. See what it might mean for you to embrace the Village Square's founding principle that, quote, the constant clashing of opinion done with genuine goodwill in the Village Square is the true meaning of democracy and the best way to solve our biggest problems. For a transcript of this episode and more information about Liz Joyner and the Village Square, visit our website at hnmcp.law.harvard.edu slash podcast. We are grateful for the help and support of our colleagues at the Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program, especially Tracy Blanchard and Bria Etienne. Thank you to Kate Ellis, our producer, who graciously works with the home podcasting sound quality that we send her. Theme music is made available to us courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions, and this podcast was made possible by a grant from the American Arbitration Association's International Center for Dispute Resolution Foundation. You'll hear us again soon on our next episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.